It's been about four weeks since we have started a new series from the book of First Samuel. We had a couple of weeks in there off, and today we're back jumping right into chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. But first, we're going to, I'm going to give a little bit of a recap to bring us back to where we were, because again, uh, sometimes, you know, especially in historical narrative, the genre of largely uh, the Old Testament, or large part portions of the Old Testament, it's a continuous story, if you will, an unfolding of God at work and God's people in, in the world. And the book of Samuel really is a continuation of sorts from the book of Judges. And again, I mentioned all this. This is by way of review. And the book of Judges is actually an indictment against the people of God who, while they had a society governed what many of us long for, think we long for, because it would be the panacea of all the world's woes, and that is to have a governance or governmental system that was run by God himself. And yet that's what God's people had before the judges came along. And as we've seen, and as you know, if you're reading your Bible diligently, as you should, and we all should, even God being intimately involved in the day-to-day actions of his people wasn't enough to quell the sin nature that resides in all of humanity. So the book of Judges is God's merciful attempt to accommodate the felt need of the people with earthly leaders who they believed would somehow be more effective than being led by the creator of the universe. And I don't know how many years ago it was. It was a long time ago. I don't know if it was 20, 25, maybe even 30 years ago when the, the, that phrase, uh, the felt need, was kind of the buzz phrase, not just in, uh, in the world or culture, but also in the church. And every conference it seemed you go to, everybody, you know, pastors preaching, they always somehow or another had to bring up felt need, and especially when it came to the church and how the church was going to reach the people around them. And the big emphasis and the thrust then was, well, we have to, we have to come to know the felt need of everybody, and we have to meet that felt need to get that open door. There's one huge flaw with that. You see, felt need... It may be legitimate, but felt need originates from the sin nature, which is the problem in the first place. And I can tell you over many years of experience, and actually I'm sure that some of you who have helped us out here in counseling in this church, maybe you've only, maybe on your very first attempt even at counseling, you find out very quickly that people's felt needs are usually why they're in counseling in the first place, because they were pursuing what they felt were their felt needs. God tells us what our needs are. Jeremiah tells us that the heart is more deceitful above all else and is desperately corrupt. And so we can't trust ourselves. We can't trust our assessments of what we need. And I can't tell you how many people over the years in counseling with me get disgusted because instead of telling them, how to solve the dilemma of their felt needs. Instead, I tell them how to solve their real need, and oftentimes it's pitted against their felt need. And so they're disgusted, and that's, well, if you're not going to support me in my dysfunction, then the heck with it. Okay. Tell me how that works out for you. Or actually don't, because I know. 
No. And yet God decides that he is going to give them, that is his people, what they think they need and what they want. In my estimation, from the book of Judges now into 1 Samuel, and then it continues in 2 Samuel and Kings and Chronicles and all of that, from that time basically forward, it's one of those times when God Almighty gives his people what they want, and that is rarely a positive life experience. God doesn't do such things in a moment of anger, a moment of rage. But rather, he does it perfectly and calculatedly to bring those he loves to a place of seeing things from his vantage point. When Jesus said in John chapter 10, I've come to give you life and to give it to you more abundantly, he wasn't talking about giving us more toys. So God in his perfect wisdom will show his people that their preferred form of government, their felt need, their own chosen leaders, and their own policies and procedures for life weren't going to change anything for the better. And that is why God, you may have heard this before, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, Second Peter chapter 1. Now, if we're reading our Bibles, as we all should be with regular discipline, and I might add with enjoyment, we already know where this current iteration of governance is going to go. Eli came on the scene and comes on the scene in 1 Samuel. And he is now basically the latest judge, an extension from all the judges that were in the book of Judges, who God allows to be over his people to try and rein in their waywardness. And that's a little mysterious to me, honestly, because Eli, as we're going to see this morning, didn't even have his own family under control, much less the people of God. So a few weeks ago, a little baby was miraculously born, named Samuel, to a wife of a good man named Elkanah. And his wife, Hannah, giving birth to Samuel, promised God that if he would do this, because she had been barren and they'd been trying and she couldn't have children, that he would, she would take that child and dedicate it to the service of the Lord in a formal vow called the vow of Nazarene. We've talked about that. Again, this is review. At Samuel's birth, Hannah rejoices with a song or a prayer which bears remarkable resemblance to the prayer of rejoicing that was offered by Mary at the birth of the baby Jesus. And I mentioned that that was not coincidental. It is God revealing to his people hundreds of years prior to the occurrence that there is another miracle baby coming who would in fact cure the root issue of the world's dysfunction, which is, again, man's sin nature, rather than merely restraining that sin nature through the force of rules and ceremonies and laws collectively called Judaism. It's also another way that God is showing us that the people of the Old Testament were saved by faith, by looking forward 
to what God would do sending the promised Redeemer, whereas the people from the time of Jesus to present, that means you and us, me, are saved by faith, looking back to what God had done in sending the Redeemer. The faithful of the Old Testament were never, they were never saved by their sacrifices. Their salvation was never by works of the law. For as the writer of Hebrews, writing again from the New Testament of the Old Testament, from a New Testament vantage point, explains in chapter 10, saying that the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices, which they in the Old Testament continually offer year by year, they can never make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had a consciousness of sin. So you see, in the very repetition of the rituals of Judaism, there is an underscoring of the theme that observance to the works of their religion is not going to satisfy a righteous and holy God. It's not going to appease his anger towards sin. And if that were the case, the sacrifices then that they were performing would have given them a cleansed conscience. And so they would have ceased to have been offered. The writer continues, No, rather in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year. And then the passage changes from recording what was said and done in the Old Testament as we are given verbatim commentary, which is inspired by God, to the author of the book of Hebrews, explaining what was just written from the Old Testament. He continues, after saying above, referring to what he had just written, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you've not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. And the explanation to that follows. He, that is God, takes away the first, that is the temporary system of sacrifice, in order to establish the second. What's the second? The second was the once for all sacrifice of the perfect one, Jesus. And by this, will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So back in Samuel, baby, uh, yeah, first Samuel, baby Samuel comes onto the scene and he is now the promised one, small p, small o, and one of numerous front runners that will continue through the ages of the Messiah with a view toward that coming promised one, capital P, capital O. So let's pick up now with new material, first Samuel chapter two, beginning in verse 11. Then Elkanah went to his home at Ramah, but the boy ministered to the Lord, that is Samuel, before Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. And the custom of the priest with the people, when any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, all that the fork brought up the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. 
Now, these are the times when you're reading the Old Testament on your trek through the Bible when you're going, shoot me now. This doesn't make any sense to me. What do we Just get through it. Get through it because you never know when God's going to let those lights click on. All of a sudden, you're going to go, oh, okay? Trust me, it happens. There's still all kinds of things. After all these years and decades of reading God's word, I still go, huh? Okay, just get through it. It's okay. It happens. And if the man said to him, they must surely burn the fat first and then take as much and then take as much as you desire. Then he would say, no, but you shall give it to me now. And if not, I'll take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord for the men despised the offering of the Lord. It shifts again. Now, Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy wearing a linen ephod. And his mother would make him a little robe and bring it to him year to year when she would come up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children from this woman in place of the one she dedicated to the Lord. And they went to their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. Now, Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And Eli said to them, his sons, why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from these people? No, my sons, for the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating. Now, if one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. (laughs) He might meditate before he mediates. I don't know. Mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father. For the Lord desired to put them to death. That's not good. Now, the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor with both the Lord and with men. Repeated. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? I stop there. So Samuel is born. He's weaned anywhere between the ages of three and five, maybe even older, meaning that he was then handed over, lock, stock, and barrel, to live with Eli which means the parents got to see him very rarely. But that was the vow that they had made, and that was the way it worked out. So Elkanah leaves this little boy Samuel to, as we just read, to minister to the Lord before Eli the priest. And that is the preface. As unimportant as it might seem, it is actually the preface now to the next pericope, which is all about what miserable wretches Eli's sons are And they are fruit of a faithless father, namely Eli. Now it is interesting that a biblical view of parenting lays much responsibility on parents and emphatically on the father for the outcome of their children's future. We drop back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is what we read. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently. 
to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What we see in Deuteronomy chapter 6 is God underscoring the importance of the father taking the lead in the household for the spiritual upbringing and development of the family. It was never meant to be delegated as women's work. It was always laid on the father's. And it also wasn't there, if you just think about what I said, you're to, you're to be doing these things and teaching these things diligently when you go in and when you come out, when you sit down, when you rise up, when you go to bed and when you wake up in the morning. Everything that you do is to be permeating by the way you live and the way you're raising your children with the precepts of God. It's not supposed to be, okay kids, you know what day it is tomorrow, Sunday morning. I expect everything laid out so we can get up in the morning and get in that car without the typical battle that we get because we're going to be late once a week. And I say now today things have so degenerated, oh, if it were only once a week, that would be fabulous. Instead of once every three weeks, four weeks, six weeks. We don't see that played out scripturally. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all yourself? Oh, yeah. Hey, Lord, man, come on. I cut out two hours of my week to go to church this week, and I promise I'll see you again next quarter. Well, thank you. What I am saying right now and what I am about to say even more is not a drive-by guilting. And I want to remind all of us that Adam and Eve had a father who was beyond criticism. Adam and Eve had a father who was beyond weakness and was beyond fault and bears no responsibility for the failings of his children. Nobody can accuse God, who was the father directly of Adam and Eve, of being anything than less than perfect. And yet, how did that turn out? Hannah and Elkanah, leaving their child Samuel in the care of Eli the priest, was no small act of faith, given what is implied at first, and then delineated explicitly about Eli and the parenting skills of the one in whose care they are now leaving their precious child. Because we are told in verse 12 that Eli's sons, sons of the priest of God, were worthless men, for they did not know the Lord. The word there that is put in our language as worthless, it doesn't do justice to the Hebrew. There really is no, no good translation. Because the word is Belial. And if you still have a King James Bible laying around somewhere and you have a concordance, you'll see that the word Belial is just printed in there as Belial because it's like, how do we even translate this to get to communicate really the depth and the intensity of all this? It does mean worthless, but it means more than worthless. It means being despicable of nature and character and having the characteristics of the kingdom of darkness. 
This is, this is about the worst thing you could say of somebody. And then it says that they were worthless men for they did not know the Lord. It is important to note that Eli's sons are not described as worthless men and they didn't know the Lord, but rather they were worthless because they didn't know the Lord. And so to understand this and to put it together with the rest of it, we have to take this in contrast to a tiny detail that lies yet just ahead in our narrative that we are given concerning Samuel, which will come when we get to chapter 3. Remember, the Word interprets the Word. But I'm going to jump ahead to chapter 3, to verse 7, just again to make the point, because to understand this, we need to have already read that to understand this in its full intent. Now Samuel, for Samuel 3, 7, did not yet know the Lord, nor had the Word of the Lord yet been revealed to him. Okay, put this together, weave it for me. This little detail that we're just told about Samuel, that Samuel was just immature as to the ways of Jehovah, is an important detail distinguishing his not knowing the Lord versus Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, not knowing the Lord. Eli's sons, you see, they were not ignorant of the word of God. They were not children. And they had been raised in the ways and the traditions and the values and the rituals of Judaism under the tutelage of Eli, their father, the priest. And they themselves also became priests. So Samuel's lack of knowing the Lord was innocent and it's contrasted to the sons of Eli who were fully aware but had rejected what they had known about the Lord. And even way up in the New Testament, 2 Peter tells us, and honestly, I don't fully understand what this means, not fully, in the scope of evangelism and personal responsibility and all that, but Peter writes, it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known and walked away. That Eli was a pathetic father and a pathetic leader is obvious from the narrative if we read it carefully. And we are supposed to read it carefully. First, Eli, while reprimanding his sons, uh, ish, for defiling the holy rites and the rituals of Judaism, by taking whatever they wanted from the offerings of the people, whenever they wanted them, however they wanted them, Eli, we are told in just a few more verses, was enjoying the spoils of their wickedness, even while pretending to discipline them by what amounted to little more than even slapping them on the wrists. These priests of God, Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, trampled, on the holy sacrifices, which as you know, if you read the Old Testament, God has meticulously given instruction on how they must be carried out. Why? Because he's a nitpicker? Well, yes, he is because there is symbolism and there is meaning and message and basically sermon in the way 
that the sacrifices were conveyed. God was giving information to people about the Savior, the Messiah, and salvation, and all of that. So you didn't mess with how it was to be done. They weren't just empty rituals. And not only did they disgrace the holy rites of Judaism, which were so pregnant with meaning for God's people, they used their priestly authority and status to fornicate with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And guess where they got that from? That was a cultural value that they adopted from their neighbors, the Canaanites, who used sex as part of their religious rituals. These God's priests were doing all of it. And this adopting the pagan ways, the the godless ways of your environment, is called enculturation. It was always the death of God's people in the Old Testament, and it has been the death of the church's spiritual vitality, integrity, and effectiveness throughout the ages. Simply put, enculturation is the gradual, usually, process of being absorbed into the traditions, the habits, and the values of the godless among whom they lived, rather than being distinct from, rather than being separate from them, as God had ordered and orders all of his people from the very first. This is why when God said, behold, when you come into the land that I'm going to give you, you are to utterly dispossess the people that are there because they do not know me. They do not honor me. They are pagan. Don't even make peace with them. Don't let them remain because no matter what they say, you will be drawn into their sin. They will not be drawn into righteousness. So utterly get rid of them. And every time God's people said, oh, me, Israel went right down the tubes again, being enculturated, taking on the forms of the people they were supposed to dispossess who had no use for the Lord Jehovah. Eli says to Hophni and Phinehas, his sons, in verse 25, that sinning against another human being, that's one thing, but sinning against God That's a whole different level of sin. For in that case, there's no one to take up your cause. So we're talking about a lethal situation. We are talking about a deadly predicament. Eli's sons are on a path of certain destruction because the nature of their sins are against God himself. And in that kind of a desperate situation that is quite literally life and death for his sons. How does Eli discipline his sons to bring them back in line? Verse 23 and 24, he said to them, Oh, why do you do such things? Hmm. These evil things that I hear from all these people, no, my sons, for the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating. Almost as if he's saying, now boys, come on, how many times do I have to tell you, guys, really? I mean, I know boys will be boys. Come here, okay. And then after doing that, he says, now where's the meat that you got? You say, where'd you pull that from? Just wait. And if it seems that I am being unduly hard on Eli... 
I mean, after all, you know, even you said, Pastor, that his sons were not toddlers. No, they weren't. They weren't adolescents. They were big boys and men with high calling. They had the task of the priesthood. So let's be fair. Eli's ability to rein them in was gone years ago. Well, the rest of the passage says otherwise. First of all, please understand that adult behaviors of extreme dastardliness do not mysteriously emerge when they hit the age of majority. I'm telling you, unless there's some true outside, meaning anatomical, biological, physiological condition, you know, that comes into an individual's mind or something like that, or extenuating circumstances, what I'm saying is, is that children who are raised respectfully and in control and by wise parents or committed to God, giving God's precepts, being faithful when you rise up and when you lie down and do this, they don't grow up like this and then all of a sudden hit the age of majority and then, whoa! and they just turn into these monsters with rare exception for the caveat I already gave. Meaning this is no surprise. And it tells us something about Eli's parental skills. You see the fabric of what an adult will be is woven into the tapestry of a child's soul from the moment they are born. And it increases as they are toddlers. And then it rises exponentially as they are adolescents. More on that next week. And then reveals the fruit once they are emancipated, meaning once they're out on their own. And you see the real fabric of who and what they are. Eli's sons didn't just burst onto the scene as priests, despising the Lord in a moment of, well, shucks and by golly, I don't know where that came from. I'm sorry. I just couldn't help myself. I have no idea why they sound like they were southern hicks. (laughs) They were groomed. They were groomed to be despicable adults being allowed to be despicable adults through active, meaning permissive, parental involvement at the young years, or passive, meaning parental non-involvement. And then suddenly there is a seemingly out-of-place intrusion into the text at verse 26. Now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor with both the Lord and with men. But it isn't just a random intrusion. Remember Samuel, a godly priest, which he will be when he grows up, is being contrasted to the likes of Eli in general and specifically to Hophni and Phinehas. Let me give you another interpretational hit, uh, hint here about reading the scriptures. When reading God's word, don't ignore what seem to be patterns emerging in the text. And if they are indeed patterns, they are not accidental. And we have such an occasion here. Starting at verse 11, there begins a clear pattern contrasting Eli's worthless sons with the good son, the worthy son, Samuel. 
Verse 11, we have the good son. Samuel is what? We're told ministering before the Lord. Verse 12, worthless sons of Eli. They did not know the Lord. Verses 14 to 17, their worthlessness is delineated in the text. And then there's what I call what seems to be an intrusion. His good son Samuel, we're told again, he's ministering before the Lord. And then we read in verses 19 to 21, there are the blessings that God visits on Elkanah and Hannah for their love and their faithfulness to the Lord as manifested by their good son Samuel. And then again in verses 22 to 25, it's back to the worthless sons who again demonstrate their worthlessness. So much so that God himself puts a contract on them. Now, I grew up in Chicago, in suburbia. And my parents, when I was out of the house, lived in Chicago Heights, the home of Alphonse Capone. Al Capone. I know. What, who? Okay, notorious mobster in history, Right? When he put a contract on you, we weren't talking about a piece of paper that he said, hey, here, I'm going to tell you this. I want you to write here. It tells you what we're going to do. Contract meant a hitman was out to do away with you. And God himself, we're told, desires to put Hophni and Phinehas to death. Verse 26, another intrusion. Now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor both with the Lord and with men. And in verses 27 to 29, there's an intrusion changing the focus of the pericope now from the sons to Eli. Verse 27a and 29. The man of God, who is a prophet, came to Eli and said to him, Why do you, who? Eli. Not the sons this time. Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering? That's a Hebraism, again, that we don't really understand that particular translation. But it means to trample on, to despise, to scorn, to just totally disrespect in in a vile way the sacrifices and the offerings, which I have commanded in my dwelling. And here is the problem, and it is telltale. You honor your sons above me. I remember what I said earlier about Samuel or uh, Eli taking part after disciplining his sons for his ill-gotten gain from the meat of the sacrifices, despising the sacrifice that he shared in the spoils of all that. Well, here it is. You honor your sons above me by making yourselves You, Eli, and Hophni and Phinehas, fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel. And so these verses are key in understanding my previous assertion about fathers, now illuminated in God's word and God's assessment of Eli as the worthless father now of the worthless sons. Eli was more concerned about being on the good side of his sons than he was God Almighty. Eli's affection for his sons and apparently for his own personal gain from his son's nastiness, Eli was enjoying those spoils that I mentioned, scorning the Lord's offerings, both scolding the kids while enjoying the meat of the offerings which they were being scolded for. Eli was not a good father. He was not a good leader. And his hypocrisy was profound. 
and the repercussions are severe. Spiritual hypocrisy is one of the most effective factors in encouraging your children to walk away from the Lord. If your design in life is to make sure that your kids want nothing to do with your faith in Jesus Christ and all that that means or at least is supposed to mean, then by all means, pride yourself on spiritual hypocrisy. What do I mean? Well, I went online because I, I, I was aware of many numerous surveys over the years and George Barna and reports on these kinds of things. So I wanted to get a smattering. There are many reasons, of course, why children of pastors and Christian workers have such a notorious reputation, meaning for walking away and wanting nothing to do with the church and really turning into little or not so little hellions and everything else. But the top two that I found in perusing the internet, I happen to agree with. The first one is, what is preached to the masses, meaning, in this context, what I preach to you every Sunday and after 27 years here, and what I do at home are two drastically different things. Spiritual hypocrisy. What is preached to the masses is not modeled at home. The second major reason is that integrity, meaning of the parents, is fickle. In other words, are you doing, when you are in your home with your family, do you do what you say you're going to do when you tell your children to do something at an age-appropriate level and this and that and all? There's a lot of caveats here. But do you tell them, oh, this is bad for you, don't do this, don't do that. And then you go and do the opposite. There's a lack of integrity there. But it can be much simpler than that. What about just basically developing a reputation for being unreliable or being a liar to your kids? And you see, when my children were small, and I'm going back to Wheeling now when I was in seminary, and the kids were like three, seven, and eight, roughly. My goal was two things concerning them. It was one, to truly try and be that father that tries to model Deuteronomy 6. So that the responsibility of the spiritual upbringing of the children wasn't, Hey Barb, it's time for you to put the kids to bed and read their Bible stories and pray with them. No, that was my responsibility. It wasn't Barb's responsibility, first and foremost to make sure that things were being done properly by them, that things were going well here and there, and that they were being raised right. And when they had questions on things, if dad was around, dad was the one that went to. That wasn't because mom didn't know. We were honoring God's stature of the home and of that position of authority. It's a great weight. It's not sexist. It's the way God ordered it. There were many times when I wish it was the other way. Honey, <laughs> This one's yours. And so as trivial as it seems, I tried to, in, 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 uh, to bring in faith as completely part and parcel of our family life. And this is before even now, before Wheeling, had no, no idea about going to seminary. It's because that's what Christians do, I thought. Silly, naive me. 
And I remember specifically one day, I don't know why I remember this particular sunny Saturday morning, and Katie now, who was, I don't know, probably four years old, maybe, I told her, I said, let's go out for a walk. It was early morning, and right around the corner from where we lived, there was a bagel shop. And uh, one of those rare moments at this time in our lives when I had a couple of bucks in my wallet and could go get her a pizza bagel, which she loved. But as we were going, I remember it was early spring, and it was warm, and the dandelions were in full bloom, which she always loved, even into her teen years. And we stopped, and I bent down, and she crouched down with me, and she picked up a dandelion, and I gave her a little lesson on creation and the creativity of God. And isn't it a marvel that, look at the little individual, how they all fit together, and they almost feel kind of velvety, talking about that. And look at the bright yellow of that. You know, they could be gray, and just these, these nasty little bulbous things in the ground, like mushrooms. And if they were, we'd eat it. And then there'd be another blessing. Well, provided it was the right kind of mushroom. But that's what I mean. We're not talking about big deals, but I'm talking about making it part and parcel of what you do and, and truly walking along her little hand in mine. Just thank you, Lord. What a beautiful summer morning this is, spring morning, whatever. The other thing that I really made an effort to do because I see the heavenly father of the scriptures as one who is a promise keeper. And I was bored before promise keepers. <laughs> and so when I told them something, and, if I, and especially, I didn't even have to say, oh, I promise. If I said, okay, you know what, we're going to do that tomorrow. By golly, I did it tomorrow. And I have to say, honestly, with rare failure, there was a morning that, uh, a day that uh, Ginny came to me, and Ginny was into these silly little porcelain figurines, or dad, doodads, uh, geegaws, uh, knickknacks, you take your pick, whatever you call them. And she had unicorns, and she had little owls, and just these silly little things that little girls like. And she came and she brought one to me, and I don't remember if it was the cherub, cherub with the little wing broken off or a unicorn with his horn broken off, but she came and, you know, Daddy is broken. It's like, okay, you know what, I'll fix it. Just leave it in on your dresser and I'll take care of it. I forgot. Now, it doesn't mean that second, okay? I'm not some super saint. But the fact that I told her I would do it, by implication, meant in a reasonable amount of time. Well, quite a bit amount of time went by, probably maybe even a week, and she came to me again. I'd totally forgotten about it. And, and I said, Ginny, I am so sorry. And at the right times, we would have these little talks about, you know, I do this because God is a heavenly father who promises, and he's reliable, and you can trust in him. And I know that I'm that figure, and I want you to learn how reliable and trustworthy God is and a God of promise through your earthly father. And so the day went on that I told her, I will have that done before tomorrow. This time I gave her a deadline. After apologizing to her for total, you know, and she's like, that's fine, you know. Now it's bedtime. And I'm ready for bed. Got my bathrobe on. Looking forward to getting in uh, into that nice cushy bed. Uh, I remembered the knickknack. And I hadn't fixed it. And I told her it would be done by morning. So you know what I did. I went and got the Elmer's glue, hoping that it wouldn't be a rock in the bottom of it, which every time I go to get my Elmer's glue is. And so I fixed her little gee so that in the morning when she woke up, it was there. 
Now, did that change her life? No. If I never fixed that gigaw, would she now be out there, you know, floundering in sin and everything else? I don't think so. But it's hundreds of things like that, much bigger and even smaller. Hundreds of walks along the way and just sitting down and and playing something or going somewhere and talking about whatever, but making it about the Lord. It was me that did the scripture memorization with them and then had made games of it and got them sit down together. And let me tell you, it was time consuming. And most of the time I really enjoyed it. But sometimes I didn't because I had so much else that was more important to me in my world. But I look at all of those things as being part and parcel of what God used to have all of my kids walking with him today and following in his footsteps. Now, go back to Adam and Eve. His kids went down the tubes very quickly. Perfect dad. There is no guarantee. But he gives us the precepts and the principles like Deuteronomy 6 for a reason. And he gives us the example of Samuel versus Hophni and Phinehas and Eli for a reason. And as we look at our culture today, parents being parents is at an unprecedented low. And it is discouraging to realize that even Christian parents really don't want to be bothered many times for sticking their nose in places where it needs to be stuck, namely, the schools that they are in. I mentioned to you last week a meeting that I was going to have Friday. I was wrong on my date. It's not until November 3rd, two Fridays. Please be praying about that. It is, and it pertains to your children, and it pertains to your jobs if you work in the schools, and your rights as Christians to some of the ridiculous perversions that are being mainstreamed and mainlined by edict, and Christians being forced to support and endorse it. That's what it's all about. Why should I even be carrying that? Because I have to. But at the same time, that does not alleviate any parent's responsibility to be doing the same and much more. I wish that all I had to worry about was our congregation and what happens in here and teaching just from the Bible and keep my eyes out of the culture and out of the schools and everything else that's going on. And honestly, I really should not have to. When I was a parent with kids in school, Barbara and I were there. Oh, we were not appreciated. Now, nobody ever said anything. And that was how many years ago? How many decades ago? And you know what? Things haven't gotten better. I gave this little poll this morning. How many of you heard the phrase in loco parentis? Let me see if, let me see a hand. Yeah, a lawyer. I expected one lawyer, a congressman. Okay. In loco parentis, I'm surprised, but I'm not surprised. I'll bet if you ask, I could be wrong, 
But if you ask any principal of any school, they'll tell you what in loco parentis is. And if you ask the superintendent of schools, he will definitely or she will definitely tell you what in loco parentis is. It's a Latin phrase. It's a legal term. And it means that in the absence of the legal parent and guardian, we're talking now a school context, we now legally have parental authority and prerogative. It is, a, it is an absolute abuse of what the phrase is all about legally and what it means. And ironically, many universities have really backtracked from that because it is. But the public schools in elementary, middle, and high school haven't gotten the message. So they really believe that, hey, you know what? Your kids are with us. And after all, let's be honest, they're feeding them. In the morning, they're feeding them in the afternoon. Sometimes they're feeding them at dinner time, after school, in the after school programs. They're raising them. They're teaching their morality and their values to them. And with little, if any, resistance from mom and dad, and I mean from Christian mom and dad, the documents that I've been gathering up now from schools right here in our area are shocking. And Friday I got an email from an individual who is a counselor. This is yet new from what I said last Sunday. He attended... 8th grade health class. And I cannot even share with you what he told me was going on in that room. Practically hands-on and everything else. And I said, okay, one, it doesn't surprise me. Do you know, was there any kind of parental consent sent home? Or I forget my wording. He sent me back a letter. He said, here's the only letter that I'm aware of. And he's with the counseling program, so... Now, I didn't ask him, and I'm going to get clarification. Was this sent home to the parents, or was it handed to Johnny and Susie, saying, here, give this to your parents? We know where that that goes. But then even if it was mailed out, here's our culture today, because it was was like a full-page letter and not a lot of big spaces on it. Mom and dad were busy, or mom more typically, or just dad typically, because we're in single-parent days Take it, looks at it, and go, oh, brother, health, yeah, it's the school, good. They've got my kids there, you know. That's it. You have no idea what you just set down. And then again, if you had read through it carefully, there are so many red flags and red lights, but it is so craftily um, composed and written. In the sweetest flowery language, but it's not difficult if you take the time to read exactly what this is saying and you are basically giving them lock, stock, and barrel to do and say and teach hands-on their view of sexuality and of health and of morals and morality and gender and all of that. And that's within the church families. So Eli, not a good father, not a good leader, And his sons, as we see as we go through this in a couple of chapters, are going to pay a dear price, as is Eli. Barbara and I were having a little heart-to-heart midweek because I'm a peach to live with, let me tell you. I said, hon, I said, what's going to drive me just out of ministry 
is the fatigue and the exhaustion of fighting your battles for your children and your battles for your cities. And I'm being very candid about that. We have an election coming up November 3rd. The turnout will be pathetic because it's a very kind of election. What are we voting on? Well, the always incessantly coming forward, free money for something or another. You know, it's always free money called bond issues or what have you. And then school board, school board, and city council. City council. And then we wonder why the things that go on in our schools go on in our schools. Because we've got people who have a vested interest in seeing, not that they think this way, but in seeing Satan's principles and precepts mainlined. They are passionate about it, and they're out there running for office, and they're getting elected. And we're like, don't be bothered. And it's the rare exception. Like our state representative, Mr. Bradstreet, sacrifices his own personal time to go try and fight for us. We have to step up the game. But I'm starting to sound like a broken record and even obnoxious to myself. So there it is. You take it for what it's worth. Go out bummed. Go out feeling guilty. Or you can do things differently. At least for your families. At least for your children. Father in heaven, we are supposed to have the light. We are supposed to dispel the darkness. The darkness seems to be having free reign. And all because what little light we may have at times, we just want to keep it under a bushel, tucked away safely, open it up where it's safe and when it's safe, with safe people, illuminating nothing of the darkness while it's getting even darker and darker. Father, I pray. Change hearts, change minds, change behaviors to the glory of thy kingdom come. In Jesus' name, amen.